next. Go to the counter offer inside of Blender's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, punk rock and schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. This is Tuchel Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> And welcoming open mic, where comedians can get substantial mic time for the mere price of a spot of tea and crumpets. Comedians who remain after their initial sets are invited to perform feats of improvisation and ingenuity in the famous lightning round games, which are guaranteed to delight and entertain. Ah, thinking of these bright young comedians with so much potential and so many drug problems makes me as giddy as a schoolgirl. I haven't had so much fun and giggles since my non-trinary youth at Bumble's Warning School in East Brackenshire, where I danced with Hugh Grant, helped Jason Statham steal an antique shotgun and took nude photos of Prince Harry, who I must mention was not named appropriately. Sign up in person for your own comedic adventures at 7.30pm or pre-sign with the host by sending a direct message via social media. If you can't make it out to that den of iniquity known as mutinyradio.fm, listen in live from home or download the podcast on Apple iTunes under Friends of Mutiny. A smashing time will be had by all. Until next Saturday night at 8pm, cheerio darlings. (laughs) 
flat black plastic. It's special Tuesday afternoon version that's going to be subbed in on Saturday, so who knows what's going to happen with, you know. From the weed. In a country garden, a lovely rose looked down upon a common weed and said, You are an unwelcome guest, economically useless and unsightly of appearance. The devil must love weeds. He made so many of them. The unwelcome guest looked up at the rose and said, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And one supposes that goes for roses. My name is Dorothy Perkins, the rose said haughtily. What are you, a beetle weed, a bladder weed, a beggar weed? The names of weeds are ugly. And Dorothy shuddered slightly, but lost none of her pretty petals.
war, new world order machine, the future of youth goes to your fucking militia, enlisted, yeah, your fucking party's over, you missed it, the party's over, it's over, the party's over, the party's over, it's over, the party's over, the party's over, it's over, the party's over, the party's over.
Good morning, mutineers. You are tuned to Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm, on your browser dial. Between 10 and 12 every Saturday morning, we come at you with Labor and Love Radio, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Yep, this is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And good morning, everybody. That opening set today featured, ultimately, Nina Simone with I Shall Be Released, classic prisoner's song by Bob Dylan. Before that, it was the Prophets of Rage singing... The party's over, okay? It's becoming evident what a con game capitalism is to a lot of people. We'll see, we'll see. Is socialism in the air? Yes, definitely. Even the Republicans are using the S word these days in fear, in dread fear, of course worried that uh, we workers are going to wake up and see. This is simply a way to funnel wealth from us based on our labor into their pockets. Before that, before that Buffy St. Marie, don't tell me you're not the loving kind. And I, I like that one. That's from a later album of hers called Power in the Blood. And, uh, Buffy sings rock. So, this is the Labor and Love Show. Let's see what we got going on today. We've got the Labor Beat. 
downplaying deportations, how textbooks hide the mass expulsion of Mexican-Americans during the Great Depression. So this whole false fear of immigrants is, has been used before to stoke the fears of white working people. And Mr. Trump is merely playing uh, the game again. We'll see how that is. We've got Francesca, Francesca Ramsey, and Francesca is going to talk about white splaining, okay? Hollywood whitewashing. Labor 411, who is Trump's new nominee for the Secretary of Labor? After Mr. Acosta was driven from his office in disgrace. What's his history? Can't be very good, but Voices of Labor, July 27th. William Silvis, the labor of the Iron Molders Union. Battle of the Viaduct, 30 workers killed at the Battle of the Viaduct during the Great Unheaval, which the Great Upheaval, which we've spoken of earlier. New York Garment Workers Strike. Remember, you're never alone unless you don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, they'll say you stood up for sitting down. Radio Labor is back this week. Last week they didn't have a weekly report. little thing about Eugene Debs and uh, reading one of his speeches about World War I, for which he was jailed, by the way. A journalist who went underground and took a job at Amazon. And it's entitled, We Got 18 Minutes Total Break Time for an 11 and a half hour shift. And some political theory. Who is Karl Marx? What was he about? Probably one of the... Uh, least read, but most quoted uh, philosophers uh, you know, of our time. As well as that, we got our credos that we're going to read to you. We're going to hear some poetry from Langston Hughes. And as I said, the uh, two Francesas, Francescas. So, Let's start out here with the labor beat. We've got some articles that we've saved on the labor beat, part of our show where we look and see what's going on. Let's see this one. He might have stayed a minute. Coal miners with black lung slam McConnell for brushing them off 
in a meeting. Yeah, this is one of the big talking points of the Trump administration that they're going to save the coal industry, the coal industry that poisons people's lungs and ultimately kills them, pollutes the atmosphere, one of the dirtiest fossil fuels known. July 24, 2019, by Common Dreams. He might have stayed a minute. Coal miners with black lungs slam McConnell for brushing them off in healthcare meeting. It was the worthless trip. That's the way I feel, said one of 120 coal miners who traveled to Washington, D.C., I'm sorry, excuse me, to meet with a Republican leader. A group of retired Kentucky coal miners suffering from incurable black lung disease slammed Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for brushing them off on Tuesday after they asked the Republican to commit to funding their medical care. Okay, now... Mr. McConnell, as we know, is the richest man in the poorest state in our union. That's uh, Kentucky. And he's been asked to meet with some... Around 120 miners and their families traveled to Washington, D.C. this week to meet with a Kentucky Republican and pressure him to take action to finance the federal black lung can be disability trust fund. It serves as a lifeline for an they estimated 12,000 former coal miners nationwide. Miners said McConnell was rude during their meeting and quickly left after delivering a brief statement. We rode up here for 10 hours by bus to get some answers from him because he represents our state. George Massey, a miner from Harlan County, Kentucky, said the Lexington Herald leader. For him to come in for just two minutes was a low-down shame. According to Reuters, coal companies had previously been required to pay $1.10 per ton tax on underground coal to finance the Federal Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which supports disabled miners whose employers go bankrupt and can no longer pay out medical benefits. But the amount reverted to the 1977 level of 55 cents, which is half of what was going in in January. After Congress declined to take action to maintain the rate. 
The whole industry, of course, has lobbied hard to allow the tax to drop a schedule. Reuters reported, despite a government report saying the fund was in dire financial straits. Kenny Fleming, a former Pike County miner, said McConnell told the group of miners that they would be taken care of, but didn't offer any concrete assurances. He might have stayed a minute, one of the miners said of McConnell's rapid departure from the meeting on Tuesday. It was a worthless trip. That's the way I feel. Okay, so... Mr. McConnell shows his respect or lack of it for working people. People who made him, among others, rich with their labor. It's always Mr. McConnell's and the way of every Republicans under Mr. Trump and Democrats as well to disappear the workers, to adopt the wealth that the workers produce and call it their own, but forget the workers. They're not in the picture. They got paid. Their problem. Okay. Next up. Let's see. Francesca Ramsey. Why does privilege make people so angry? Talking about white privilege here. Passing trains that have no names, and freight yards filled with old black men, and the graveyards of the rusty automobiles. Sons of Pullman Porters and the sons of engineers 
Yes, we do. We serve a meal. Do the little 
Okay, that was a set of music. Michelle Angocheo there with House of the Rising Sun, the classic old blues hit. I remember a version by the animals, but there are a million versions certainly before that one. There is a house in New Orleans they call the Rising Sun. Under capitalism to get along, you gotta have something to sell. And for so many women, the only thing they had to sell was their bodies. As Emma Goldman once remarked, prostitution is the greatest achievement of Puritanism. In other words, that split life where women are dependent on men or on the financial masters of society. It's between that and selling their bodies. What the hell? What are they going to do? And then, of course, polite society condemns them for doing so. The House of the Rising Sun. Uh, before that, John Fromer's classic signature song, We Do the Work. Local labor minstrel John Fromer, who has passed from us, left behind We Do the Work and a nice body of work, of pro-labor work, including It's Gonna Take Us All. And we had the city of New Orleans. New Orleans in the news again as torrential rains hit the city. No, no, no. Uh, climate change is all in your mind. It's just a, a blip in the statistical uh, statistical overview. The city of New Orleans. All right, Labor and Love Radio here. I want to share some of your cre some of our credos. These are things that we believe here on Labor and Love, the reply of Labor and Love to problems that often end up being based on labor. So, let's see if we can get some music to back it up. Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time. Okay. Well, y'all have it up locked with, her uh, up. George Clinton. I have Clinton, tasted huh? the maggots in the mind of the universe. I was not offended. Oh, I knew I had to rise above it all. And the first credo uh, has to do shit. with Labor Day. What the labor movement has done, in this case, for child workers. Utah Phillips says, kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. 
They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. These were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. Please remember this, all the things that the labor movement has achieved came because people fought and died for them. First they died from the conditions that they wanted to correct, then they died trying to achieve that. We're talking about basic safety. These were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. Kids know that? Do kids hear about the labor movement in school? Is anything like a fair presentation in school? No. No, our, our social studies books, as we'll see, our social studies books tend to downplay the labor, especially the labor movement. They might talk about a certain labor leader, Cesar Chavez, or uh, Dolores Huerta. Some of them might get into another one we're going to talk about today, Eugene Debs. Hardly at all. Our books are full of generals, presidents, explorer destroyers, uh, slave owners, people who exploited our labor. When I say our labor, I mean our lives, right? The two are indistinguishable. great barons of finance, industry. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it. No root, no fruit. Beautiful statement by Utah Phillips, kind of going to the heart of the whole uh, argument. This one is about women's rights, and it's just a very simple one from We Resist. It says, when the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. So a woman gets raped. She doesn't have the right to get rid of that child because some committee of men have decided that she shouldn't. Those men want her down for nine months and producing, producing more babies so they can work for a living and make the powers that be richer. 
and the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, then you know it's a war on women. This is a beautiful one because it puts the whole immigration question where it should be, squarely, squarely in the camp of labor. Jesse Memmer, can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. How do you live a better life? You get a better job. You leave the place where American foreign policy is twisted and, and corrupted your local governments. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care. This whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working people to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they are all poor is due to vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Okay, you're not poor or you're not broke or you're not just on the verge because of some other workers. You're on the verge because your boss is not paying you enough. And he will use those workers. He will use those immigrant workers to keep your pay low. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Duh. Mr. Trump and his people and a great number of people in this country would blame other workers. Oh, here's a nice one from Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles. And, and you, you know, you often hear people say when you're standing around talking, people say, oh, let's not talk about politics. Everybody's just going to get mad. I'm just not that into politics, you know? Um, I'm into flowers or trees or uh, the ancient art of rustic bridge building or I'm into dancing. You're just not that into politics? Well, your boss is. Your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use, they use their political power to keep your pay low, to raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Well, that's a great one because your everyday reality is formed by what's happening in politics. Politics is nothing more than the distribution of power. How is power distributed? How is it 
used? Who has the power? How did they get it? How do they keep it? Every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Wouldn't you say? Hmm? I'd say so. Um, so, this is a statement by Denise Cooper. So, let me see if I got this right. I'm not allowed to get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. I'm not allowed to get my tubes tied to prevent any more pregnancies because once again it has to be someone else's rules what I do with my body. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood so now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. Cut funding to CHIP, WIC, and food assistance, making it harder and harder for single mothers to take care of the child they were forced to have. I think I got it. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body because my rights aren't being violated or because my rights as a woman just aren't very important. Oh, I knew I had to rise above it all or drown. We had one on trickle-down economics. But this one is called Pity the Nation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Maybe we should try to find uh, Ferlinghetti himself saying it. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars whose sages are silence and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears for thee, sweet land of liberty. Poem by uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti there. Okay, we were going to play Francesca talking about white privilege. And we will do that right now. When it comes to social justice, there's one word that can stop almost any conversation dead in its tracks. Got crossed up here. 
If you've ever stumbled into a conversation about racism, you've probably heard the phrase white privilege, which has been ruffling feathers since the phrase became commonplace in the 1960s. The concept of privilege isn't limited to race, but when it's brought up, no matter who you're talking to, too often the response isn't very friendly. Privilege? How? Dare you? So what exactly is privilege and why does talking about it make so many people so angry? Privilege is defined as a special right or advantage available only to a particular person or group of people. In the context of social inequality, it means that some groups of people are treated better than others based on their race, gender, class, sexuality, or physical ability. Now here's the thing about privilege. Everyone has it. You've got privilege, you've got privilege, we've all got privilege! So for example, as an able-bodied person, I've never struggled to find a bathroom that I can comfortably access or gone out to lunch with friends to only realize that I can't find a parking spot to get into the restaurant or even fit through the door. When I turn on my favorite show, I can watch and enjoy with ease because I don't require captions or descriptive narration, which too many shows don't have. So why does talking about privilege make some people angry? I think there are a number of reasons why privilege can be difficult to talk about. Number one, when people hear the word privilege, it feels like they're being blamed. When we use privilege in everyday conversations, we hear phrases like, X is a privilege, not a right. So the vocabulary makes it seems like it's something that you don't deserve. Combine that with the fact that conversations about social inequality tend to be very passionate, it's easy to understand why someone might be upset when check your privilege comes up. No one wants to be the bad guy, and for some people, the concept of privilege feels like they're being blamed for something that's out of their control. And when you think about it that way, sure, that's bound to make someone angry. Number two, privilege makes people feel guilty. Talking about privilege is not meant to make you feel guilty. Guilt isn't productive. Acknowledging it isn't about shame, it's about challenging the system that perpetuates inequality. The existence of privilege isn't my fault or your fault, but understanding and acknowledging it is an important first step in working to make a world where these obstacles don't exist. However, ignoring the problem or refusing to acknowledge the problem exists just allows it to continue and thrive. Number three. Anger is a defense mechanism. For some people, talking about privilege feels like they're being attacked, or worse yet, that their privilege is going to be taken away. In reality, privilege describes things that everyone should experience. For example, as a straight person, I don't encounter people passing judgment when I'm affectionate with my husband in public. That's not a bad thing. It should be that way for everyone, no matter their sexual orientation. Number four, they just don't understand privilege. The thing about privilege is it's kind of hard to see. It's like when a horse has those blinders on. They can see what's in front of them, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in the peripheral that they can't see. As wonderful as it would be for everyone to be treated fairly and equal no matter who they are, that's just not the world we live in. Privilege doesn't mean you're rich, a bad person, have had everything handed to you, or have never had challenges or struggles. It just means that there are some challenges and struggles that you won't experience because of who you are. So when you've lived your whole life with something, it's hard to understand what it's like for those without. Now, it's impossible for me to guarantee that every time privilege is brought up, it's justified, or that everyone talks about these issues in a responsible way that's free of name calling or personal attacks. And unfortunately, if you've ever had a particularly nasty encounter that included the word privilege, then you might be turned off forever. But if you want to support equality for everyone, which I hope is why you're watching this show, it's important to remember that these conversations are inherently tough but necessary. And the discomfort or anger you may feel when talking about or understanding or acknowledging Acknowledging your privilege pales in comparison to the oppression that those on the other side of the coin deal with every day. So if you ever had difficulty talking to someone about privilege, or maybe you had trouble understanding it or even acknowledging it, tell us about it in the comments below, and we'll see you next week right here on Decoded.
In our last sketch, we revealed the secret training camp for social justice. Francesca Ramsey on privilege. And if you want to see evidence for privilege, look at the world around you. Who's got the money? Who's got the power? Under capitalism, money is power. It's a certain class of people. It's not exclusively white, but it's very, very close to it. Those people aren't going to give up their privilege. You know, being rich is a privilege. Anyway, Francesca Ramsey from MTV. Now, here's an article from the Zinn Education Project by Ursula Wolf Roca. And how our textbooks hide the mass expulsion of Mexican-Americans during the Great Depression. This is on the uh, Zinn Education Project's uh, website. And... The Trump administration's horrifying record on immigration sparked a new round of discussion and debate about U.S. deportation policy. Deportations are nothing new. Obama was rightly criticized as the deporter-in-chief. But with enthusiastic cruelty and vigor, the Trump administration has embraced deportation, including the targeting of long-term residents with no criminal record. As acting director of ICE, Thomas Holman explained, the president made it clear in his executive orders, there's no population off the table. You're in this country illegally, we're looking for you and we're going to apprehend you. The massive reach of this effort, the uncertainty and terror it elicits, and the opacity of the controlling laws make this a dangerous moment, not just for immigrants and their families, but for everyone who cares about due process and human rights. Now again, these are people who are coming to the U.S. for a better life. In our textbooks, this is the meaning of America. All these poor people coming from Europe, coming from different parts of the world, willingly or not, sort of slick over that. People who were in one instance switched from being Mexicans to being second-class citizens in America, the United States. It also recalls an earlier time in U.S. history nearly 90 years ago when Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants were ousted from the country in enormous numbers. Fifth graders in California in 2015 successfully lobbied their legislators to require that the story of deportations being told in classrooms. 
a mass deportation of as many as 1.8 million people rarely makes it into the standard curriculum. Here's a quote from one of the text, textbooks. Economic woes and racism drove nearly half a million Mexican immigrants and their American-born children from the United States in the 1930s. Local authorities in the Southwest encouraged the federal government to deport Mexicans and offer free transportation to Mexico. <laughs> we want you to get the hell out of here. We'll even, we'll even pay for it. Note the disembodied economic woes and racism that did the dirty work of driving people from their homes. Notice Mexican immigrants and their American-born children, obscuring the fact that 60% of those deported were citizens, children and adults. And finally, the most perplexing notice, the textbook's cliffhanger, never telling readers what actually happened. Local folks encouraged the federal government to act, but did it? What happened? What happened is that men, women, and children, immigrant and U.S.-born, citizen and non-citizen, longtime residents and temporary workers all became the targets of a massive campaign of forced relocation based solely on their perceived status as Mexicans. Mexican sounding name, huh? American Journey and other textbooks ignore the stories of loss and forced relocation behind the number stories like the terrifying raid that took place at La Placita Park in Los Angeles in 1931. A vibrant cultural hub La Placita Park in the days before television and radio if you wanted stimulation and excitement you went to La Placita on a Sunday afternoon in late February the park was full of close to 400 people when suddenly immigration agents sealed off the exits they arrested dozens and reported many Check it out. Zin Education Project. Certain parts of our history are highlighted. We know all about uh, certain things. And we don't know anything about others. It'd be the Declaration of Independence and the American State Papers and the Dream of America. We know all about that. Oh, yes. The Statue of Liberty. Send me your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Hello? Say it what it is. Bullshit. Excuse me. Okay, one more before some music. Trump's anti-worker labor secretary nominee. One second, please. 
Our background today, of course, is Maggot Brain by Funkadelic, one of George Clinton's, Larry Clinton, one of his bands. Trump's anti-worker labor secretary nominee. Now, we remember that Trump's original nominee for the Labor Department was uh, uh, Alex Acosta, who was driven from his job because of a sweetheart deal he made with a man named Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein is widely known as a rapist, as a statutory rapist, someone who prefers to have sex with girls under the legal age. Mr. Trump is a friend of his, or was. Now Mr. Trump claims that they're not friends anymore. Trump said, yeah, well, Jeffrey prefers uh, sexual pleasure with young people. He's a lot like me. (laughs) Something to that effect. Okay, this is from Labor 411. Would it kill us to get someone in the executive board who cares about workers? President Trump's nominee for labor secretary is a corporate shill. The acting U.S. the acting labor secretary once allowed unchecked slave labor to make made in the USA products and the nominee to be general counsel at the Federal Labor Relations Authority is questionable at best. It's not all bad. Check out our suggestions for labor-staffed entertainment options around the country. So this is your Labor 411. So the man who was nominated happens to be the son of Anthony Scalia. Now, Scalia is sort of one of these maverick people. A lot of people... uh, admired him, though they didn't agree with his opinions. Uh, Evidently, he was friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's just too bad. But Scalia once compared gay marriage to a flagpole sitting. His stand on abortion rights means that women have to go back into the back room with the hanger or the weird you know, surgeon, quote-unquote. He endangers women's lives. Okay, let's see. Eugene Scalia, anti-worker lawyer who represent represented Walmart when it wanted to evade employee health care obligations, is Trump's pick for the new... to be the top... to be the labor secretary... Trump says, Gene has led a life of great success in the legal and labor field and is highly respected not only as a lawyer, but as a lawyer with great experience. He will be a great member of an administration that has done more in the first two and a half years than perhaps any administration in history. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump now wants to make it easier for federal workers to leave their union. Mr. Trump and his people want to make it harder for labor to organize. 
And again, it sounds bad, but we've been here before. The whole history of the United States is a history of a weak central government that does not, that does not protect its workers, that exploits its workers, that makes it easier for the workers to be exploited. All right. How about some songs of social significance? Working at the car wash.
de mi gente set. We just finished with Corrido de Cesar Chavez by Lalo Guerrero. Lalo Guerrero, very famous uh, border singer, militant as well. Uh, Corrido de Cesar Chavez, a story of Cesar Chavez and his campaign to bring justice to the fields. That still hasn't happened. We'll have a little article next week about. The struggle goes on for farm workers. Uh, as we said, the, your employer's always trying to keep your pay low. Use any excuse to do so. Bob Marley, before that, with 400 years... Uh, recalling Malcolm X's comment, Malcolm X's comment that America owed African Americans for 400 years of free labor. Malcolm X, you know, bringing it, realizing that labor is the basis of a lot of the oppression and the racism that America grew up with. And then we had the car wash. Working at the car wash, it's better than digging ditches. 
Not much better, but better. All right, now Radio Labor, our World Labor Report. From Radio Labor. On Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor Global Report recorded on Friday, July 19th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, unions in the UK say no to a no-deal Brexit. Teachers are meeting at a global congress in Bangkok, lobbying for the ILO Centenary Declaration and singing... This is Radio Labour. In the United Kingdom, unions have come out unequivocally against a no-deal Brexit, which would see the country leave the European Union without a negotiated agreement. The UK is scheduled to leave the EU on October 31st, 2019. The most powerful unions in the country, including Unite, GMB and Unison, announced on Monday, July 8th that they will push for a second Brexit referendum and campaign to remain in the EU in order to stop a no-deal exit. If, however, the opposition Labour Party wins an election before the end of October, the unions agree that the party could negotiate a new deal and put that to the people with the option to remain in the EU. At a recent national conference, Unison General Secretary Dave Prentice said that for his union's members, no deal is a bad deal. The union is concerned about what will happen to public services after a Brexit and especially worried about what will happen to its members who are EU citizens working in the UK. At the Unison Conference, the Labour Party's Shadow Minister Secretary of State for exiting the EU, Keir Starmer, was asked why public services and the National Health Service need to be protected from a no-deal Brexit. If there's a no-deal Brexit, it's going to impact really heavily on the NHS and public services in so many ways. Um, vital provisions, medicines, etc. won't be there. We need people to work in those services. It'd be so disruptive that we shouldn't countenance it. And that's why um, the Labour Party with the trade union movement has said we'll do everything to stop a no-deal Brexit. And we've said that now for two years. It's particularly acute now we've got a Tory leadership race um, going on and the positions are more and more extreme. But we have to do everything we can to protect working people, people who use the NHS and other services so vitally. So we will vote against no deal Brexit um, and that's why we've said consistently now uh, that whatever the outcome, it's got to go back to the public for consent. You cannot allow this to happen without that lock. Mr. Starmer was also asked why worker rights and equality rights are at risk with Brexit. One of the things that um, we've worked with our EU partners on for many years is the protection of workplace rights, environmental rights, consumer rights. And that's why trade unions such as Unison have been so strong on this issue, because they know that that's a floor of rights that their members have, working people have, that are at risk with Brexit, particularly at risk with a no-deal Brexit, and of course always at risk with a Tory government. So we've always said you must keep those rights. They've got to not only be put in place now, but they've got to keep pace with what happens uh, in the EU. And it's another reason why we've said that at this stage, with the Article 50 exercise almost over, um, whatever deal now is presented to Parliament, or even no deal, 
it's got to go back to the public so the public can say that that's good enough for them, or if not, uh, that they want to remain. In the Unison interview, Mr Starmer was asked what the government should do for EU citizens working in the UK. Well, the first thing we need to say to EU citizens living in the UK is thank you for being part of our communities. Thank you for working in so many sectors, including the sectors covered by the trade union Unison. Um, What we should have done immediately after the referendum, I think, was to unilaterally guarantee their rights because um, those individuals are very much at risk. They're very anxious. I think all of us as MPs, as trade unionists, have had anxious EU members saying, what's my position? What we could have done and what we should have done is unilaterally to say, whatever the deal, Um, And whether we stay in or we go out on a deal or no deal, your rights will be guaranteed, because at least then there'll be that legal certainty. I think if the government had said that at the start, we'd have got that through in a matter of weeks, and it's a great shame that we didn't do it. We've pledged that um, if elected into government, it'd be one of the first things that we actually do. Teachers and other education workers from around the world are meeting at the 8th Global Congress of Education International in Bangkok, Thailand, July 19th to 26th, 2019. EI is a global union federation which has about 400 affiliated unions representing more than 30 million workers in 172 countries. It is the largest global union in the labor movement. The theme of the Congress is teachers and other education workers taking the lead. Just before the Congress started, I talked to EI's General Secretary, David Edwards. I asked Mr. Edwards to describe what will happen during the eight-day Congress. Well, Mark, uh, the EI Congress is going to discuss and decide policy on a lot of different issues. As I think for most of the Global Union Federations, we're going to have to be considering resolutions that our member organizations submit and also those that our, our executive board has submitted. And I think given the state of the the world right now, we're likely to get some urgent resolutions at Congress's. We probably won't be able to really predict what will happen at Congress until after it's over, but I think based on the discussions that I've had with the board and members, we're also organizing the debate around sort of three major themes. One of them is a focus on education systems, inclusive, equitable, quality education systems. And that's because it's, you know, it's not enough to look at at a classroom in isolation. We have to look at the larger education environment. And I think um, teachers are better able than almost anyone else to to shape that environment through their trade unions uh, in a way that can achieve quality education. However, it also means that there has to be the funding, means there has to be the political will uh, to ensure that that meaningful, inclusive education experience happens. Um, And I think, as we've said on other programs with you, it also means insisting that educational minds remains a public common good and doesn't become the domain of private for-profit operators. Another theme will have to do with the sort of the challenges to the status of the teaching profession. And there are challenges that are global, and they do take different shapes in different countries. But I think in, in general, it's fair safe to say that teachers prefer to devote their lives to their children rather than just holding down a job. But to actually do that well, they need to have the autonomy so they can adapt education to their students' needs, to, to real people rather than to just sort of hold an iPad and teach based on anonymous data and standardized tests. So 
from that you can extend that they should also have the compensation and conditions that correspond with their professional qualifications, and they should be able to improve those qualifications throughout their careers. So we're, we need to lead on our professions. Just taking the lead is sort of the theme of Congress. It is the theme of Congress, and I just mentioned leading in terms of education systems, leading on our professions, also the education support professionals. And the last one has to do with, with democracy itself and rights. Somebody was just telling me that Mark Twain said something about the weather, that everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, I think you could almost say that about democracy sometimes, too. And there's been a lot of discussion about this crisis in democracy, but little about the contributions of education to build critical thinking, foster healthy skepticism, you know, sort out facts from lies, and develop competencies for active citizenship. So I guess you could say we... We are trying to do something about the weather. And uh, one of the things that's going to happen to Congress, my predecessor, Fred Van Lewin, and our president, Susan Hopgood, have written a book on education and democracy, 25 Lessons from the Teaching Profession, that's going to be launched at Congress. And this will sort of help us to support democracy as professionals and trade unionists. As a foreword from Timothy Snyder, who wrote the book uh, on tyranny. I think of democracy in the broadest sense of that word, and that's the democratic, the deliberations we're going to be having uh, there. It's sort of, I think about that as why we work. And I think about our profession and our status as how we work, and I think about the school systems as where we work. So in that way, but many others as well, the systems, the teaching profession, and democracy are intimately linked and intimately braided together to, to reinforce and strengthen each other. Radio Labor will be reporting directly from the EI Congress in Bangkok. To mark its 100-year anniversary, the UN's International Labor Organization has adopted a declaration for how it will address the future of work and other issues. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. Unions around the world are organizing to implement the centenary declaration of the future of work adopted by the International Labor Organization. The ILO is the United Nations agency focused on matters of work in the world. It celebrated its 100th anniversary during a two-week conference in June 2019. It did so by reaffirming its mission for social justice and outlining its goals for work in the future. The last ILO declaration was the Declaration of Philadelphia, adopted after the Second World War, which said that labor is not a commodity to be used as just a product in the marketplace. One of the unions which was instrumental in the adoption of the ILO's centenary declaration was Public Services International. The PSI represents some 20 million workers in 150 countries. Sandra Masaya is the PSI's sub-regional secretary for the Caribbean. She was asked about the work which went into the passage of the declaration at the ILO conference. Over the two weeks, I worked with our various partners, that is our global union federations and our affiliates during the International Labour Conference. We were particularly concerned with the outcome document from the conference, the Centenary Declaration. Our intent was to ensure that we reinvigorated, we renewed what we call the social contract. We also particularly wanted to ensure that there was a clear statement about the value of public services and the value of those workers who deliver those public services. In our own discussions within PSI, we've recognized that 
public services are not always valued by not only the employers, but sometimes our very own citizens take them for granted. So we have to ensure that in a declaration that will mark the way in which we see the work of the ILO and the future of work, that we reinvigorate in people's lives the importance of public services. Now here are public service workers in the UK singing, Let's Work Together. international labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that's Radio Labor for this week. Workers all around the world, some 5,000 of whom will die 
and work-related causes. Today, in the U.S., some 250 people will die from work-related causes. Today, as always, this show is dedicated to them. We're talking about uh, farm workers earlier and the uh, Corrido of Cesar Chavez by Lalo Guerrero. The struggle is still going on. Uh, In many ways, it's as dire as it always was. Since 2013, the Coalition of Immokali Workers, that's a Florida-based labor group, has been mounting an effort to pressure Wendy's to participate in its fair food program, which ensures better wages and safer working conditions for Florida's tomato pickers. The CIW has been organizing in Florida for over two decades, and its efforts have been widely recognized for improving the lives of thousands of farm workers. They've provided persuaded companies like Walmart and McDonald's to buy their tomatoes from growers who follow strict labor standards. But that high-profile holdouts have threatened to halt the effort's progress. One big... So Wendy's is one of their targets. Um... They've launched a campaign to get officials at college campuses with Wendy's restaurants to either remove the chain or block it from doing business there in the future until they sign and join this effort to make at least, at least make farm work a little better paying and safer. One big fact the Times article failed to note is that the real power behind Wendy's is a prominent hedge fund run by a well-known Trump donor who owns $123 million Palm Beach estate right next to one of Trump's properties. These These are billionaires now. $11 billion in assets in this hedge fund. Fast food chain is one of the hedge fund's prized portfolio companies. Their boards are joined, okay? Tryon is an activist hedge fund that uses its stake in companies to assert influence over their operations. In addition to Wendy's, the CIW is also trying to pressure Costco and the supermarket chains Publix and Kroger to join the fair food program. Publix, pardon me. Okay. So, Tryon Partners and Wendy... Hosting as a moderate while funding Trump. That's the game nowadays. And I guess it's about time for us to go. Uh, 
this day in labor history. July 26th, 1877, we've spoken here on this show about the great upheaval. This was part of that. 30 workers were killed by federal troops at the Battle of the Viaduct, Chicago, during the Great Upheaval. During the battle, U.S. troops and police attacked about 5,000 workers at Halstead and 16th Street in Chicago. A judge later found the police guilty of preventing the workers from exercising a right to freedom of speech and assembly. This day, 1894, President Grover Cleveland appointed a United States Strike Committee to investigate the causes of the Great Pullman Strike and the subsequent strike by the American Railway Union. Later that year, the commission issued its report absolving the strikers and blaming Pullman and the railroads for the conflict. Twelve miners, four guards killed in 1912 at the Battle of Mucklow, a West Virginia coal strike. President Truman issued Executive Order 9981 directing equality of opportunity in the armed forces. This action stemmed from a case in 1946 where a black veteran named Woodward was beaten so much by a southern sheriff that he went blind. Voices of labor. Remember, you're never alone unless you don't stand up. Okay, that's about it for our show today. Um... This is Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is the B signing off, Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Hello to all of you out there. Rita Silvia Solina. Everybody in my fan club. <laughs> and remember, Mother Nature has a master plan.
of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Jester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for... <laughs> it's in duty, this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage in the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday 8 to 10 down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. <laughs> In your car, and you're listening to one radio station. You need radio doing station. You're filtering all, all the others. They are, they are tweeting in all, all frequencies, and you keep them. So just listen to, to one specific six. Saturday, Saturday to two. And you're 
sound quality, quality good and you understand understanding that's plain plain. However, however, if your radio video is not fine too too, you might need two or two or three or more stage stations at the same time. time. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up a excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody subliminal sf visual and auditory mind control brings you the best coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over san francisco and the bay area Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find Counter Offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini and creamy delicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They got them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Blender's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son! Located at 806 Second South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite and bar, awesome bartender, and a but killer you back patio. It's a great place to hang out with pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Shoes. Last Friday, the and you swear 